Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. Kmime is the first application in today's list, and it is a it's a, an application that mimics the silent expression of emotion and activity. No, not really. That's miming. That's it's a clowning technique. Uh, no, or a performance technique. I don't know if mimes are considered clowns. I'm not really sure. But anyway, K-mime. That's K-mike, indigo, mike, echo. K-mime is an API. It's, it's a library, rather, containing an API for the handling of mime data. What is mime data? Well, it seems that the the term mime is kind of on the way out technically. I, I'm not sure when it'll go out, but if you look at the, the listing on IANA.org, uh, the assignments of media dash types, it's calling, it, it calls media types media types. And it even says formerly known as mime types. So I don't know if, if the mime term is being deprecated. And I don't know what MIME ever stood for, actually. I kind of did a cursory search around to try to find out what it meant, but I, I couldn't find it. You probably know. Someone knows out there. I, I do not know what it means. What I do know, more or less, is that it is, um, let's call it a form of metadata that describes what a computer program should anticipate to to receive. So you have, for instance, audio slash aug, I imagine. Is that what it, what what the thing is? Yes, it's audio slash aug, or audio slash opus. Which, by the way, if you're not subscribed to the opus feed, do try it. Opus is honestly, it, it is such a nice codec. It gets things so minimal uh, in terms of size, and the quality is just remarkable. So really, if, if you're not listening to the opus feed, and you can... You should, you should try switching over to it. Anyway, a MIME type tells your computer about different file types, and then your computer can respond in some predetermined way, as computers are wont to do. We all probably... Should I say we all? I don't know. Many people will know about MIME types just from the internet. A lot of times a web browser defines its behavior based on MIME type. And MIME types are self-declared. That That's kind of their point, I guess, is that they are metadata that someone, not applies, but that someone creates in order to warn an application what kind of file it is about to receive. It is meant to be a helpful and useful thing. There's not a whole lot of opportunity for malice there. You can lie to an application, but that doesn't mean an application is going to understand what to do with the file you then hand it. So, for instance, you could say that a binary executable is actually a plain text file or a music file, and your computer may try to open that binary executable in an audio player or a text editor, and it will have varying degrees of success depending on on how open an audio player is to playing static for someone, uh, interpreting binary data as sound, or how eager a text editor is to provide hex editing capabilities, or at least hex viewing capabilities to its users. So MIME type data is informative, and on the internet it, it sort of warns an application or it, it warns your computer what it's about to be sent, which is a useful thing, because that way when you download a file from the internet, then your computer knows what it has just downloaded, and so it can try to open up the most logical application to handle that file type. Easy. Now, on the computer side, at least on Linux, and I don't know how other operating systems handle this in any way, but I do have commentary about some experiences about that. But on Linux, you have a MIME type sort of database of your own. And I really ought to know off the top of my head where that's located, but I don't. It's in .local .share uh, slash MIME. There we go. 
those are obviously your user-centric definitions of MIME types. There's a system-wide uh, ver version of, of, of those MIME definitions out in user share as well. And because you have a user, a local version of that information, you can change it for yourself should you want to. It's not hard to do. You go to, uh, you open up like Dolphin, for instance, or whatever your file manager of choice is, Dunar, whatever. Right click on it, uh, on, on a file, sorry, on some file. And then you can uh, choose how you want to open that file. And you can also tell it to remember that choice. And when you do that, you are editing, you are changing the, uh, the, the, the way that the, the, the preset for KDE Plasma Desktop to handle a specific kind of MIME type. Because whatever you just clicked on has a MIME type assigned to it. And your computer keeps track of what application you want to auto-launch when you click on a file of a specific MIME type. It's a very smooth experience in Linux. I have never had a problem with it. It is absolutely sublime. I love it, which is funny because it apparently is a horrible, miserable, confounding situation for users of anything but Linux uh, or BSD. And I say that not from personal experience. I say it from just the way people react when I send them a file type that they don't recognize. Or rather, when I send them a file with an extension that their computer doesn't recognize. So for instance, try sending someone on Mac OS, probably Windows, whatever, a file ending in .md. I mean, maybe it's gotten better very recently, but I have not too long ago experienced emails back and forth with people who say, I cannot open a .md file on my computer or a .adoc that's ascii docs extension .adoc that really confounds those users or the rather those users is computers ziz it just it it just won't open apparently now obviously really it will open like it would definitely open in something you might have to download a open source text editor maybe so that the thing doesn't complain about you trying to open something that it doesn't recognize. But it's obviously the, the, the transition from my computer to their computer has not changed the file, has not corrupted the file in any way. It is simply that it is a, it, it is still a text file, but it got this new extension that their computer just doesn't know how to handle or what to do with. And it's not just one or two people. This is something that's pretty common in my experience. It seems to really, really throw other operating systems off. Now, I don't imagine for a moment that there's no way to modify those operating systems so that they handle those things smoothly. Like, I, I don't think that it's actually that only Linux and BSD can understand how to open a .adoc file. I understand that that's not the case. I am simply saying that in my experience, people on Mac OS or Windows seem to really struggle with file extensions that don't match that operating system's expectations. They also seem to struggle with the concept of file extensions. And this is a, a great place to note that file extensions don't actually mean anything. They they don't they don't do anything. I mean they may have significance to a specific application, but to the to to computing, there is no significance to a file extension. You can, of course, call an audio file a .txt. The icon may change. That doesn't mean the data has changed. It's just a file extension. You can call something htm or you can call it html. There's no difference between those two files. It is just the extension. It may alter how, or rather it won't alter, other applications may understand or not understand that file extension based on what you've entered, but that's just a preset. That's just a restriction that's been programmed into an application. Or, to be to be very forgiving, it is it is a feature that has not been programmed into that application to be to to look beyond the file extension. And I think a lot of operating systems 
now hide file extensions as if though they were somehow not useful. And I'll agree because I just said that they don't they're not they're not essential. It obviously doesn't matter what the file extension is. And yet, it's something in computing that we use as shorthand for a quick and easy mime type notation. And so when you hide it from users, I think that that really can confuse things. So mime types on Linux are really well integrated. I've never had a problem with it. They're easy to access. You have a little database of them that you can modify and change on a whim. On other operating systems, it seems to be a lot more confusing. Although again, I don't speak from experience. I am simply speaking f- uh, from from the perspective of being someone who has sent someone a file that they can't seem to understand how to use. So that's interesting. And it would be nice if, if that would get better on other platforms. I wouldn't mind that. That would be a feature. I'd be happy for operating systems to quote unquote steal from Linux. Next up is K-Mines. That's different than K-Mime. It's K as in KDE. Mike Indigo November Echo, I guess Sierra, because it's plural, right? Mines? K-Mines, yes. Okay, so K-Mines is, according to its own little handbook, is um, a version, the KDE version of the classic Minesweeper game. I don't know what Minesweeper is, but it's a classic. Uh, so this game, I, I play it on the zombie setting. There's a, um, if you go to configure K-Mines, of course, is with many of the KDE games, there are different themes, and one of them is a graveyard mayhem theme, which gives you zombies instead of mines, which I prefer, frankly. Okay, so, I mean, I don't, which one would I prefer in real life? That's a good question. I guess zombies, because you could at least, you know, run from them and kill them and stuff. Well, you can't kill a zombie, it's already dead, but you can destroy it anyway. Okay, so the board is a two, four, six, eight, nine. 9 by 9 plot of, in in this case, grave, grave plots. You can click on a grave plot, and assuming it does not contain a zombie, you're okay. And in fact, what that does is it reveals all the adjacent grave plots that are definitely free of zombies, and then it stops, I think, at a zombie, I believe, is the way it's 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 functioning. It, the r- rule book isn't super clear, but the around the edge of the around the perimeter of this area that that has been cleared or swept, I guess, uh, there are numbers, and the number apparently tells you how many grave plots around that pos- uh, around that stone, that gravestone, how many grave plots contain zombies. So in the lower uh, southeast corner, I have a gravestone with the number 2 on it, meaning that one of these adjacent plots, and there are eight adjacent plots, one of them contains, two two of them rather, contains a zombie. Now I know that three of them do not, because three of them were cleared. So the northwest corner, the north corner, and the west corner have all been cleared already. I got those eliminated, as it were. But that still leaves one, two, three, four, five plots that are polluted with zombies. So what I'm going to do, and, and there's a couple of, you know, you, you can infer different information about that, right? So there's there's the plot to the west has a one on it. So that must mean that one of its adjacent plots has a zombie on it. On it. And the one to the west of that has a one. And the one on the west of that has a one. So you can kind of ripple through and see, okay, well... This square is highly likely to be a zombie because this, both of these gravestones are pointing to the idea that there's a zombie there. Or you could take a different tactic, and if there's another plot sort of across from this one, you could take your chances and click on that to see how many plots sort of nearby have zombies. And maybe you can zero in sort of by 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 uh sort of almost triangulating as it were uh to find the zombie. Now all it takes is one zombie. You find you click on one square and it has a zombie on it. That's over. The game is is finished. So you do have to be quite careful because they pop up really really fast and it is difficult to avoid them and there are so many. I mean it feels really good when you click on a square and a bunch of gravestones pop up because you think okay well i've cleared i've cleared a significant portion of this board 
But the reality is that the game is not over until you have uncovered all possible empty squares. You've left all zombies buried, you've uncovered all other possible squares, then the game is over, not before. So you can do as well as you want, but the moment you click on the the one square that contains a zombie, the game is over. That's it. So it's a tough game, and I don't feel like I love the the strategy of it. I don't feel like it's 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 a very strategic game. So I, I'm just not sure that um, that that this is a game I'm going to go back to. It, just to be clear, it's it's not the implementation of the game that I don't love. It's just the game itself. I don't find it all that intriguing. I think it's possible to find it intriguing if you really get into sort of the elimination logic of, well, if this gravestone says one, and this gravestone says one, this one says two, and that one says one, then that must mean that the zombie is there between those two gravestones and and not over here between the other you know under that one so you can sort of divine a lot of information from from what the gravestone warnings are telling you it's just that i don't find it that interesting just not finding it that fun so that's k mines well done i love that they have different themes i think that's probably my favorite thing about the kde game system is just that 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 you can just retheme all kinds of games and it doesn't change the game necessarily well it doesn't change the game it just themes it but but it, it might make it that much more enjoyable for you just because theme matters and it, it turns out that that flavor in games is really important okay let's go get some coffee speaking of flavor and then we'll come right back and talk about k-mix <laughs> back with coffee. Hopefully you've got a nice cup of coffee of your own. I said we were to get right back into K-Mix, and I realized that's not true at all. We have listener email to talk about from Deep Geek, no less. So Deep Geek says, I've been feeling the need to weigh in on issues regarding herd mentality, quote-unquote, and software choice. It's been a month since you've discussed this, but it has stayed with me like a splinter in my mind, and I keep thinking of the question, what is the OS? Now this is Klaatu again. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here because I think if I'm reading this email correctly, I think Deep Geek has made a point here and then he goes on to some new points in the next paragraph. So I'm going to respond to this point assuming that it is a central point of this email, even though it's only been like two sentences. So what is the OS in question to, or in, in as a response to what is quote unquote mainstream software? And you'll recall, dear listener, that a couple of episodes ago, I was mu- actually it's more than a couple. It's four hundred and seventy-seven is the episode number. I was musing about how people responded to software that they hadn't heard of before, and 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 the assumption that there is a that there is a normal software, and then there's the other stuff that 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 you, dear listener, are making them use, or you use yourself, or whatever. And Deep Geek is saying, is posing the question, what's the OS? That is a significant question to ask within a scenario of software choice, which I think is probably what Deep Geek was getting at. That, that's, a, that's, that's a significant question, because if you are not on Linux, and, and I'm saying Linux, and there's a, a whole second section of this email that goes into that topic, but... I'm going to say Linux for now. If they're not using Linux, then their certainly their perspective, their point of view, their origin point of what normal is is completely different than if they are using Linux. So for me and Deep Geek and for probably you and for someone else and for one of your friends, normal is LibreOffice. That's a normal office application. But to somebody else, it's a fringe thing that they've never heard of before and that's clunky and that doesn't work like the way that they think that the tool that they've been using and trained on works. 
And so it must be bad. I mean, it can't even be a real thing, or else everyone else in the world would be using it. And everyone else isn't using it, so it must be weird. It must be abnormal. It must be different. It must be not good. And look, humans are weird. We're really, really arbitrary and random and, and strange. We will take offense at the weirdest thing. And some, and you're, you're liable to run into people who do. You're liable to run into someone who takes your choice of using Firefox instead of Chrome, LibreOffice instead of whatever Microsoft is calling their Office Suite now, as not just weird and different, but actually aggressive. Like, it's offensive that you would choose that tool. Why are you choosing that tool? Is it just to be different? What's your problem? Why can't you just be like everyone else? Or is it because you, you think less of me because I'm using this other product? Or, you know, whatever. The full range of human emotion can dr be drummed up by anything, and anything includes software choice. And I think that that's shockingly relevant. It, it seems really weird, and it seems not connected in any way to... One time I suggested we used Jitsi instead of Discord and people went crazy. Or, again, the counterpoint that I po that I, that I talked about in 477 was that sometimes I, ch I say let's use Jitsi and no one cares. They click on the link, they're there, and we use it as a chat service. I mean, a, a, a audio chat service. And it's just that easy. So it, it really, really depends, I think, on the, the people that you're talking to, what they're presumptions are. But there's another angle to this. What is the OS? Now, I don't know the cause, but in my experience, a lot of times, my choice of weird, air quotes around weird, applications is weirdest to people on a f different OS from me. And I don't think it's necessarily always because they haven't heard of it. It is very frequently because they can't get it to work on their platform. Even if it releases something for their, even if it's internet-based, whatever reason, their platform, their choice of operating system, which for most people isn't a choice, or it's a binary choice. You get Mac or you get Windows. Those are your choices. And, and sometimes there's that's whittled down pretty quickly by price. So whatever they're running, the service that I suggest or the application that I suggest doesn't run on their on, in their environment. Now, again, that can be sometimes a web service, and they just can't, for whatever reason, get their camera or their microphone to connect up to that to that website for, for whatever reason, and I don't know why. I have two theories. One, because those operating systems aren't very good. Two, because the users don't know how to use computers very... I really want to say good, but it's, of course, well. Um, I just... The symmetry of operating system not being good, users not being good, but that's that's doesn't work. So the the computer's not good or the user is not well. That doesn't work either. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Some people, and I think it happens more often on operating systems that are not Linux, don't know how to use their computer very well. They're just not they they just haven't explored all the different options. They don't think to click the little button that's blinking red or to respond to the little prompt that says you need to give me permission to add, to to use your camera or your microphone or whatever the 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 issue is they can't get there from wherever they are and so they're the ones reporting hey this application that you chose isn't working for me why are you being so difficult let's just use zoom or discord or you know whatever and it's it is strange to me but I think that the significance of, yeah, what is the operating system? I think sometimes the significance of that isn't whether it's sort of like what's quote-unquote normal to you. It's also how can I quickly assess your technical ability? Oh, you're using Linux? Okay. The probability is now high that you are a power user of the platform of computing. Oh, it's it's... Office, or, uh, whatever it's called, Windows, it's Mac. Okay, probability less now. Those are generalities, obviously. We can't, we cannot, <laughs> we, we really cannot say that all users of Windows are not, don't know how to use computers. Like, that is absurd. Um, but, or, or Mac even, you know, like there are developers on those platforms, very, very smart people who do really amazing programming work 
on those platforms as we speak. I'm just saying, in general, if you need a, a quick assessment, if, if I were to talk to three Linux users and say, hey, everybody, do you want to meet on Friday evening for a Dungeons & Dragons game on Element or on Matrix, I can kind of be relatively confident that they're going to be able to hunt that down, connect, turn on their microphone so they, they can, we can all hear each other and so on and make everything work. Whereas if it's a bunch of just random Windows and Mac users, I might think, well, there's a bunch of biases that are probably built in there. They're probably going to think that normal is FaceTime or Skype, and they're going to think that connecting needs to be over those platforms. And, you know, and you just, you just make these kinds of safeguard assumptions to ideally make the, the, the experience least painful for everyone involved. And I think that's a fair shortcut to make. I mean, I'm acknowledging that it's a horrible shortcut to make. Like, we shouldn't do that in real life all the time, but sometimes that's the way to do it. You just, you, you get an assessment of, of the, the type of users that you're dealing with, and you adjust the way that you are approaching them based on, on preconceptions that you have. Sometimes those are going to be wrong. Sometimes they're going to be offensively wrong, but it's a, it, it is a, 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 a place to start. I mean, the other way, maybe the healthier way, would be to ask people, you know, like, do you consider yourself a technical person? I just, I don't like that question myself. I think that that's a silly question. I think technically we're all technical. So I guess I might ask, do you like to click around a lot in an application or do you mostly just stick to what you know? That's kind of driving towards the same point. It's all a game, like an actual game. It's a game in, in, of life, of trying to figure out how we, we deal with each other socially. And we take shortcuts, and sometimes I do think that we just, I think sometimes it's easiest to base it on the operating system. And I guess that's another way of sort of basing sort of expectations on really a community. And it, it so happens that a lot of my Linux-using friends are members of the same community. Like, I know a certain group of people on Matrix, largely connected by th th through our love of either Linux or just technology in general. I have a high expectation of their technical ability. I wouldn't I wouldn't demand anything of them, and I'm happy to to dumb something down quickly as needed. But that's the expectation I go into that community with. Whereas if it's a community of just sort of general board gaming players. I mean, I don't even assume everyone has a computer. I mean, probably everyone does, but I mean, you know, like I make no assumptions and I, and I scale my expectations accordingly. Okay, now that I've convinced you that I'm not a horrible person who prejudges people all the time, I hope, uh, there is this other part of Deep Geek's email and I think that it's a different topic. I believe he distracted himself with the question of what is the OS, or maybe that was just the punctuation mark. That's, that's, that was his question to me about quote-unquote weird or abnormal applications. And then, by the way, there's this other topic that I was thinking about, maybe, is what Deep Geek is saying. And here's what he has to say about this other topic. What I see as most important in regards to the question of the operating system is that I, I really hate the statement, quote, I run Linux, end quote. It may seem like splitting hairs to most people, but with the advent of Android phones and Chromebooks, it's become more true than ever that Linux really is just the kernel and the operating system is something else. And then he goes on to take, for instance, Nix OS, Chrome uh, OS, Android, Slackware, and Debian. So five different operating systems is what he is asserting because he says that NixOS, while at first you might think, well, that's it's a Linux distribution, so it's Linux, you know, it's Linux. He points out that it doesn't use the standard Linux file system hierarchy. It doesn't, it doesn't do this, the, the, the standard Linux file system structure, like for instance, Slackware and Debian. And then of course, between Slackware and Debian, uh, you might have uh, differences uh, specifically around system D, for instance. I mean, Debian, I think by default, uses system D now. So that's quite a different experience from the BSD style 
init system that Slackware uses. And then, of course, you've got Chrome and Android, which are completely different. I mean, Chrome is literally a browser, I think. Chrome OS? Well, whatever it is, it I should know that, actually, because I've built Chrome OS from, from uh, Chromium OS from scratch, so I should know exactly what it is, but it's just escaping me now. I haven't thought about it. But it's the... Um, you know, it's it's a browser turned inside out. Android is, you know, a bunch of Java runtimes or Kotlin runtimes or something uh, st- stuck on top of 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 a kernel that that boots um, your phone. So there's there are serious serious differences between these these five things that casually you might claim as Linux. You might say that Slackware and Debian definitely, yeah, Linux. Well, not so much. They're quite different. Android and Chrome, even more different. NixOS, pretty similar to Slackware and Debian, but different again. And so De- uh, DeepGeek is making the point that that really, at this point, Linux itself has evolved until uh, to the point that it, it is no longer Linux. And he says, I typically say I use Debian, which is a Linux. That's what he's trying to... or he says, I typically say, so I guess that's what he says uh, in real life when, I guess, when the topic of operating systems or computers comes up, he says, I use Debian, which is a Linux. And I, you know, that kind of works. Um, I think part of the problem with that for me is that when I say something like, oh yeah, I run Slackware, what does that mean to anybody? They've already shut down by the time I say, which is a Linux distribution. Like that, that that's a complete assortment of words that of meaningless words. Slackware makes no sense. Linux makes no sense. Distribution makes no sense in the context of a computer and an operating system. It just doesn't work. So I, I usually, I think I usually do, I'd have to monitor myself now, but I think I do generally say I use Linux. Well, actually, I probably usually say I use Linux, which is an open source operating system or something like that. It, again, it kind of depends on who I think I'm speaking to which is tricky because it involves that sort of prejudgment. You have to gauge the person, profile them. Oh, that, that person doesn't arbitrary, you know, that, that person doesn't look like they would know what Linux look is. Like, what does that even mean? They don't look like they would, you know, I don't know, but we do it and, and you just kind of, you just feel it out. Or maybe you don't, maybe you don't say, oh, that person looks like they would know Linux or wouldn't look like, but you know, the social situation that you're in often defines the kind of wording that you're going to use. So if you're if you're at a, a dinner party among friends of 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 your partners, maybe you would say you would you would use you know more verbose responses. Oh, I use Linux, which is a an open source operating system for computers. It's a little like Windows, except all the code is available or whatever you want to say, right? Um, versus if you're at a a a, a gathering you know, at a university, maybe, I don't know, maybe you might think that, that you could get away with just saying, oh, I use Linux. I mean, definitely if you're at a university computing science department, right, then, then you're totally free. So yeah, you you just use setting information to sort of decide how you're going to say these things. I do think that DeepGeek is making a, a good point though. I just think that when we make these points, we really are, we're, we're, we're up against a we're up against human nature i guess we're we're up against the the shortcut that our brains make for branding purposes and just sometimes the 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 easiest thing to say is yeah i run linux easy i don't have to get into the details unless they say oh my gosh i run linux and then you can say really i run slackware what do you run and then maybe they'll say something surprising like I run Chrome OS, but I have the Linux thing turned on and I can install applications and it's really cool. Or maybe they'll say, oh my gosh, I run Slackware as well. What are the chances? And I can tell you the chances are actually quite small to just run into a random person who also runs Slackware. Uh, okay, so that that was DeepGeek's email. Uh, he emailed me a follow-up email, but um, it sort of just sort of clarifies some of the, the statements that he made in the original email. So I'm not going to go through that one. Instead, I'm going to talk about KMix. KMix is the volume adjustment application in KDE, and I will be honest, I don't use it as much as you'd 
think I would use it, which I, I, it, I got into a habit um, as I, oh, and it was over the pandemic when my, the, the amount of video conferencing I did ramped way up. And so what I do now is I go to, um, I go to audio system settings, but as a uh, KCM, I guess. No, no, it's, oh, it opens up. Never mind. It's, it's within the thing. I never noticed that. Isn't that funny? Um, and, and I, I select my, my input device, my output device, and I, you know, I just any kind of initial volume setting that I need to do there. And then I close it and then I'm set for whenever, until I need to switch the audio device that I'm using. Uh, and when I need to switch the audio device I'm using, I go back to system settings, I switch and repeat. I don't have to do that. I don't know why I do that. Like I say, I just got into the habit of it. And maybe because it was on 14.2 that I got the habit, that I started the habit with. And then 15, Slackware 15 came out and maybe KMix has gotten a little bit better. I'm not sure. Either way, I I actually count myself as a fan of KMix even though I, I, I apparently don't use it as often as I should be using it. And I am going to try to actually use KMix more often. And it was in preparation for this episode, in fact, that I realized just how useful KMix was and how, rather I should say, how useful it has become, how, how much more useful it has become. So KMix is an icon in your system tray. You can click on it to see all of the inputs and outputs on your system. There, the inputs are on the left, at least on my setup, and then the outputs are on the right. I could, I think you could actually, if you right-click on it and go to configure KMix, I think you can change the the um, the yeah, I guess align the orientation. That's the word I was looking for. You can have horizontal or vertical, and I have them as vertical. So you click on the speaker icon in your system tray, and you've got your inputs on the left or the top or the bottom and you got your outputs and they each have individual little sound meters now for the record on the os that i was using before i started using linux way back when did not have this feature it was pretty shocking when i saw this this kind of thing because i mean kmix has obviously changed a lot over the years but i mean when i saw the kind of levels of control that i had over the sound system just for free, just of my operating system, I was blown away. I thought I had found the the tr- the one true operating system, which in, in fact it ends up that I had. But I mean, really, I just thought this was amazing. I I didn't know that this kind of thing was possible. So just just by it existing, I'm impressed with KMix. That's that's how easy of a of a sell I am on this. It's just that simple. It exists. That's amazing. Now, uh, I will say that KMix isn't like sort of a tabbed interface, at least sort of the way that it's set up by default. I mean, it's not a tabbed interface is what I'm I'm trying to say. It is not a tabbed interface. So if you want to go in and look at things a little bit closer, you have to click on a little button and that opens up a KMix window with different tabs for playback devices capture devices, playback streams, and capture stream streams. So for instance, right now, because I am recording in Audacity, I have a, an Audacity capture stream with its own volume, which I can control f- right here from, from KMix. I've got a playback stream with, with Elisa showing up. It, Elisa isn't playing right now, but it's aware that it's launched, that it's paused, or, or st- I think it's paused, or is it paused or stopped? I feel like it's actually stopped. But anyway, there's there's a volume control for that. So everything sort of like from one central control panel is available. And that's just amazing. I mean, that's that's just such a user, a, a sort of a, a pro user kind of feature. And, I, and by pro, I mean, I guess both. I mean, pro level user, you know, power user and you're very much for the user. It is. It is a. a this is a, a. This is a tool that you can actually use, and and you get you get usefulness from. Like this is a a thing that you can use and do cool things with, and it just comes with your desktop, just just because. But wait, there's more. So you can right click on any 
device, any any column or, or row of of these video slide or the uh, volume sliders rather, and click uh, on use device or mute to uh, either use a device or uh, mute the thing. And that's really cool. And and this is the that's the quick access to the audio settings that I use to switch what which microphone I want to use at any given time for um for a video call for instance for a video conference you just right click in the slot that you want to assign a you know an input into assign the input to that and now you're routing sound so for instance let's say here's audacity i can right click on audacity tell it to use a specific device and i could tell it to use my headset or i could switch it over to the a webcam or the other webcam, like I say, I've got two right now, and and that would just switch the inputs. Let's try it. Let's try it right now. Here's there's the input of the webcam into into Audacity, and now I'm going to switch it back to my headphones. And again, there was no cut there. I just right clicked on the input for Audacity and swapped out. Just unplugged one thing and plugged the other one back in into it, and and it just it it was smooth and quick. And just right there, just right where your volume is supposed to be. All that power exactly where you'd expect it to be. That, is, uh, honestly, I think of all the KDE innovations, and I don't know if it's an innovation, but of all the KDE Plasma Desktop features, that's got to be one of the nicest ones. That is just so smooth and so nice. And it's just so intuitive. It's, it's one of those things where... You don't have to know about that to find it. You, you do have to click around. You, you have to be willing to open a thing, to right-click and to left-click, you know, to, to truly to find it. And sometimes thinking to find it is not something that you do. And as I said, I, I got used to just going into system settings for the longest time and, and just didn't occur to me, really, to think about, could I just do that by opening KMix instead? But I could. I, I can. And... and when I decided to click around in there, that's how I figured it out. So it's it's pretty easy to do as long as you ask the question. You just have to remember to ask the question. Now, all of that, um, that's really, I only use that for switching inputs and outputs. Uh, in, in real life, if I'm just listening to music while I'm, I'm writing or something, I'll, I'll just use the volume keys on my keyboard. The, the usefulness of K-Mix is, on one hand, great but then the usefulness of a dedicated button on your keyboard is is really really good okay next up is k mouse tool k mouse tool is a real interesting application that i did not know existed it is a mouse clicker which essentially well it runs in the background you can start it and it'll just it'll run in the background and when you pause when you stop moving your mouse over a, a, i think a clickable item a clickable widget it auto-clicks your mouse. I, I'm not sure if it's purely an accessibility feature for, like, a disability. Like, you cannot click a mouse, and so you have this tool to help with that. Or if, like most of those sorts of conveniences, it's just something that, that could be used by anyone, really. Maybe you just don't want to click a mouse for whatever reason. Uh, this could be really useful. There are adjustable uh, characteristics here. You can, for instance... Uh, decide on what counts as your mouse dwelling over a a widget, a clickable widget. You can uh, you can change how long the mouse has to be there before a click occurs. Although I don't know, I mean it's it's measured in one tenth of a second, and I think the highest value I could set it to was something like forty, I think. So. It, it that to me didn't really make that much of a difference. You can even institute smart drags, so you can have it click and drag stuff. Uh, you can do audible clicks. You can do um, you, you can start this with your desktop session, so it's always on. Or you can just try it. So if you if you launch K Mouse Tool, click start, then it'll be active. It'll it'll be in effect. So. You can try it. If you don't like it, you can click stop, or rather hover your mouse over the start the, the stop button, and it will be clicked for you, and then quit, and never open it again, which is kind of what I did. I tried it. I didn't... I, I just don't trust myself. I think I would end up clicking accidentally on all kinds of buttons that I didn't mean to click, 
And so I turned it off pretty quick, quick, quickly. Very, very interesting. I don't think it's for me, but I'm really glad it's there for somebody. K-Mouth is next. K-Mouth is a, it's a little text box that looks almost like a chat box, uh, like a chat uh, application. And you type in words into it, and then you Hello world. have a voice say something to you. Um, it is not pretty. It is the classic sort of e-speak um, speech synthesizer. So it, it is not the most. It's not necessarily the the most attractive sounding sound, unless you you know it's it's retro, right? I mean that's that's neat. It's it's a retro kernel based speaking system that is that is kind of kind of fun in in some cases you can of course go to configure kmouth to make adjustments but not as many adjustments as you would think to be honest there's no place there's no easy place at least to select what voice you want to use not that the voices are all that di- different they're all stored in user lib east Speak-data or something like no, Maybe it's user, user share. You speak-ng-data. There are two folders. There's Imbrola and exclamation mark V. And those both have valid voices in them that you can use pretty easily from the terminal. I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't get it to go here. I, I feel like there, there is an alternate command for speaking text. And I felt like that should do it, but I couldn't get the command. I couldn't figure out what the what the correct command would be. I mean, I I, I guess it would have been e speak dash ng dash v and then a voice, so m b e n one for instance, and then and then I guess maybe nothing. So maybe that's maybe that's what it is. Let's try that. No, that didn't work. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Sort of like what the target is you know when you give it the command how do you how do you tell it what the where to find the input and i i just i really don't know so anyway that's k mouth i don't understand the 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 u- intended use case of this there is for instance a phrase book with a bunch of predefined phrases i guess that might be useful and you can edit it so you can have your own predefined phrases so maybe these are truly meant just as examples. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is literally for people who cannot speak themselves. That that may be the point. Um, I'm not sure. But it, it's a, a fairly small text field, so you couldn't, you, you don't say much at once. But I mean, if that's the intended use case, we, we often, at least when I use a chat application, I, I often speak sort of in these weird sort of like half sentences, I press return and then I finish my thought and press return, you know, that sort of thing. So maybe that's kind of like just the intended use case. So that's K-Mouth. It is a text-to-speech interface. And I, I have to say text-to-speech in my my experience so far has been really full of variety because you have people who want to, for instance, use text-to-speech because let's say they're blind and they need the interface to be read back to them. You have people who are interested in text to speech because let's say they're busy, they're 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 otherwise engaged and they want say an ebook or a, a blog post to be read to them. I'm assuming for Kmouth you have people who cannot speak themselves and so they need Kmouth to to do the speaking for them. And then you've got yet other people interested in this sort of thing just because of machine learning and sort of the the fascination of programming and developing a natural sounding voice. So when you're doing research, as I did this past week, on on text engines, uh, uh, speech synthesizers and text-to-speech engines, there's a lot to sift through. And it's really, really difficult, I'm finding, to filter it all down into the the category of text-to-speech that you actually care about. I mean, I found a really cool text-to-speech engine uh, from Mozilla, TTS, Mozilla TTS, uh, which has been forked, I think, into Koki uh, TT or something like that, or Koki AI, something like that. And and it's great. It sounds really good. But tying it into eSpeak-ng, I, I just couldn't figure it out. I, I tried, 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 could not figure it out for the life of me. I'm going to, I'm going to revisit it. But in terms of getting a 
an interface going that that reads stuff off of the the screen not in that horrible robotic voice it's it's actually been pretty tough so i don't know i don't know what i'm missing but it's it's definitely a complex subject but kmouth is just like i say one of at least four different niche interests in TTS that I've been able to sort of discover and uncover on the internet. And I think that's it for this episode. Next time we'll do KM Plot and K My Money and a bunch of other applications. So thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Machine. You're not supposed to have a fax machine hooked up to your line. Oh. Okay. Can you turn that off so I can talk?